Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Simon, thanks for taking some time to join me on the show. My pleasure. We're going to talk about behavior, psychology, your journey, how people can think and act under pressure and hopefully mitigate some of the biases that so many of us are afflicted by, some lessons for managers and super funds and financial advisors and everyone in between. So it's going to be pretty wide ranging. I often start with a few icebreaker questions, some like quick fire questions. And I've got one here that I've never tried on anyone else. And I'm just so curious to see where you take this. So what's one piece of investing wisdom you would give to a 65-year-old, but you wouldn't give to a 30-year-old? Good question. So when I was thinking about this, when you sent through some sort of ideas for what we could talk about, I was immediately thinking about asset allocation uh, being very different across those two groups. But I, I think when I sort of drill down to more and think, what is it that, that a 65-year-old would, would regularly get wrong that a 35-year-old or a 30-year-old wouldn't? To me, it's, it's the 65, I'm probably retired or I'm approaching retirement, maybe I'm working part-time. I'm now looking for income from my investments rather than income from my employment. What do people who are in that sort of stage of life often want? They want investments that generate income. And the answer is that you don't need investments to generate income. You just need income from your investments. So my advice to them would be, you don't need dividends. You don't need income or interest or dividends as much as you think. You can get your income from capital gains. In fact, it's maybe tax advantageous to do so because the capital gains tax sort of concessions and all that sort of stuff. Maybe it doesn't matter because you're in pension mode and you're not paying any tax. Okay, fine. However, as a general principle, you don't need to go searching for investments that actually provide you dividends. And this, I think, links into one of those decision-making biases that I'm, I'm sure you're going to delve into more, which is around the, the mental accounting. We account for, there's income from my investments, therefore I feel like it's okay for me to spend. Let's partition it into this bucket of it's, it's okay to spend money that's income. It's not okay to spend money that's capital, but we really need to break out of that and go, actually, it's, it's my money. I don't need to divvy it into these buckets. I just need to make sure I've got enough of it so that I can spend what I need to spend. Mm. I'm going to extend this question really quickly and follow up with you and maybe just get you to give us a quick 101 because I think this may be brought up a few times throughout the show, which is as concisely as you like, explain what mental accounting is. 
So mental accounting is a bit like the accounting that you have for financial accounting where you're putting money in different buckets. I have my debits and my credits and this is revenue and this is expenses and here's my balance sheet, all that sort of stuff. But I'm doing it, I'm creating my own buckets in my mind where I'm putting dollars. So theoretically, dollars are all dollars are all dollars, right? I've got $100 in my wallet. It's not in some sort of accounts in my mind, which didn't necessarily have to be. But mental accounting says, that's not the way I think about it. My $100, if that's $100 I just won at the casino, I'm going to think about it very differently from it's $100 that I've just, it's come from my regular pay packets or it was my tax return. So the source of it, I account for it differently. I have these different mental accounts and they will then influence my behavior as to how I might want to spend or save that money. A lot of investors would listen to this and they probably think, but there's this idea of like free carry when you make an investment and say you put $1,000, it goes to 1500 You take your 1000 out and then the 500 is free money. Right? I feel like, I don't know if that is an example of it, but I feel like that's kind of going to it. People treat that money differently. Yeah, it's called the house money effect, that one. Okay. So I, if I feel like I'm playing with house money now. I've taken my money back off the table that I put in originally. This money's come from the house or the casino or from, or from the stock market. So yeah, and then my risk profile for that little bit, that last remaining bit is very different. Now I feel like I can lose this money. It doesn't matter so much. This is not really my money. But money is money is money. It's all it's all the same. Hmm. Yeah. So it's called house. The house money effect, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay, so the second, I usually characterize these as short answer questions, but I feel like maybe who knows where they could go. If you could instantly acquire one skill, so not like a superpower or something, but just something that maybe you see in other people that you admire or um, some sort of trait or something, what would it be and why? It's not going to be on the list. I know you gave me some examples uh, I know earlier and I was thinking, yeah, they're all very good examples, but mine is very different. So- how I spend my time when I'm not working or reading or sort of doing professional related things is my main pastime is basketball. And so what I like to do, I would love to be able to dunk. If I could, and not just dunk as in, I can just get slightly above the ring so that I can just push the ball in a little bit. I mean, that would be a big improvement. It would be, now I want to be like, I don't know, Ja Morant, if you know, you follow the NBA or Mac McClung, the guy who just won the NBA dunk contest. These guys is like they've sprung off a mini tramp they are way above the rim. They can catch the ball a meter away. They can throw that thing down. They could spin a 360 and dunk it behind their back, all this sort of stuff. So it just looks immensely fun. It would The teams I was playing would, would, would go off the charts if they could just lob the ball up and I'd go and catch it in the air and slam it down. I mean, it would just, yeah, anyway, so slam dunk like Ja Morant. I, put on my list. I love that. I think that's so great. And that's what I'm trying to get out of this question is, just to see where your passion lies and what you're curious about. And this is this is great. I am five foot 11. I will never be able to dunk. And I'm quite, I've reserved to that fact many years ago. So <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, but, but I'm five, 10 and a half, very slightly shorter than you. I used to be able to get my fingers above the rim so that I could, if I put the, a tennis ball right at the very end of my fingers, I could just get it down. That's quite a leap. Yeah, but that's when I was 18 or something. But look at Mac McClung, the guy who won the, the, the dunk contest. I mean, they say white men can't jump. Well, he can. <laughs> that, that dude can. Yes, great. Okay, so we've spoken once before and a lot of people have spoken about you and remarked after you. And I was chatting to a colleague Kate before about and we're looking at your CV and where you've come from to get to what you do now. And I just find it fascinating. And we were just, I just mentioned off air how when I was doing the CFA curriculum, the idea of behavioral economics, behavioral finance, and these types of concepts were touched on. And it, I remember there was one paragraph in there where they said, this is an emerging kind of 
area of investing in finance that people should start to take seriously. And this is going back quite a few years. But then I look at your journey and you seem to have cottoned on to that quite a while ago. So I'm very curious in your career, how did you end up here and talking about these things on a national scale? Well, it depends how far back you want to go. So I mean, behavioral finance is psychology and investment or finance stuff combined. So where do those two bits come for, from for me? Well, the psychology, you could say, well, what was it that led me down a path to psychology? Well, my father is a professor of psychology. My uncle's a professor of psychology. Could you say that I had it in my blood? Could you say I'm influenced by my parent, my parent and my uncle in this case, that it's sort of it's, we've had some exposure at home? Possibly. So there's, there's one potential argument there. Was I encouraged to do it? Maybe. There's a related thing. If you're looking at sort of the genetic uh, implications or sort of precursors, Rory Sutherland's, I don't know if it's his theory, but I've heard it from him. He's got an idea that the people who are interested in psychology are not the people who find interpersonal relationships easy. They are the type of people who are more on the Asperger's type spectrum. It's the people who, because it's not quite natural that we're sort of stuck there going, What's going on? I don't, I don't quite understand. I really, so you, you sort of have this inclination to really go and investigate what is driving this, all this human behavior I see around me that doesn't seem to quite make sense. I want to go and study it, whereas other people go, oh, no, no, no I don't naturally sort of understand or have sort of um, some implicit understanding, whether it's right or not, I guess, uh, about what's going on. And so I think to some extent you'd say I am on that sort of Asperger's, I'm not, not sort of fully down the spectrum, but sort of on that path a bit. Mm-hmm. So I think those, there's a couple of precursors there. So I did go down the path of doing psychology and then a bunch of sort of investments-related stuff. And I think you're right about the sort of the CFA example. So when I studied psychology and I studied finance and investments and economics, they were two separate departments that were in sort of two separate faculties in the university and didn't really have much uh, interplay. However, I did continue studying and eventually did a Master's of Applied Finance. And when I was subsequently years later – this is Macquarie Uni, they had a, a system where once you've already graduated, you can go back as a alumnus, I think maybe it's a singular, you can go back and you can choose additional subjects that you might want to do just out of interest and they'll charge you half the price and you won't have to do the exams or the assignments and you won't get any credit for it, but it's just a way of in- increasing your knowledge and understanding of different areas and maybe stay in contact with the university and other students and that sort of stuff. So I went back and did project finance or I don't know, I can't remember what it was, but the guy who was running the topic, who was very good, and he was an ex-CFO of a large listed company and well-credentialed financial uh, professional, and articulating the sort of content that he had in the course and held with materials, he said, oh, and by the way, there's all this interesting sort of psychology stuff about the psychology of decision-making. I've, I've got all these papers that I've put in your materials, but I can't really speak to them because I'm not a trained psychologist. And so I was sitting there thinking wait a minute, if this stuff is important and you can't really tell me about it, who can tell me about it? So it, it sort of dawned on me that there was this gap between the people who had deeply un, had the deep understanding of the finance investment stuff but really only had a cursory understanding of the psychology. And then on the flip side, if you look at the, the psychologists who might have a rudimentary understanding of some of the finance investment stuff but not a deep understanding about how those two pieces were together. And so I sat there thinking, maybe this could be me. Maybe this is the area I should be going into. But I agree, it, it, it's been a, an evolution from those, those two being separate to sort of saying, how can we bring them together? I feel like we're entering a golden age for this type of thing where we have all the tools and information and now people just don't know what to do with it. And this comes up all the time in our community is 
how much money should I be saving? Well, that depends, right? It depends on who you are, what your goals are, what your priorities are. And basically what we say is it comes back to being intentional with money. And that basically comes from understanding yourself, right? At the end of the day, we don't know what your intentions are. And investing is what we, we know now, thanks to some great books and some articles that have come out, which I'm, I'm going to press you for in a minute. But if I'm not mistaken, did you have a role at Goldman as an analyst? Yeah, I did. That was one of the things I was doing, yeah, a while back. Yeah, that's uh, – um, I mean, the Goldman stuff, I was at, I was in their debt capital markets team and I've subsequently been in investment banking and sort of M&A, corporate advice sort of area. So it's a bit separate from what I'm doing now, which is more about the investment stuff. But actually when I'm – so some of my clients, for example, are venture capital, private equity groups, corporate M&A teams in large, large listed companies. And to some extent you can take – a similar lens about the, the decision-making aspects, be they sort of the introspective own decision-making biases in how we value companies and think about sort of their future f- forecasts and that sort of projections. And also the influencing stuff and those two things can be combined in how they negotiate contracts and that sort of stuff. So the Goldman sort of links in there a little bit. No, I just thought that was very interesting and it's important context for our listeners who think that maybe – investing is this kind of like hardcore finance, pure numbers-based thing, which we're going to unravel some of that in a minute around how it's a lot more, I guess, broad than that. And qualitative aspects of finance are so much more important now, I think. Uh, That's just my own view, right? And so if we continue on this journey then, Simon, how did you go about learning about behavioral psychology and behavioral economics uh, and all these different types of things that we now maybe take for granted, the very basics of that. How did you first discover that? Well, I guess I kept in touch with the, the ongoing psychology to some extent. That, um, yeah, I mean, not, not in a particularly systematic way, but having sort of, I guess, a grounding in it across time. It did, did get kicked along, I guess, by prominent things like, I don't know, books like Thinking Fast and Slow and Nobel Prizes won by various people. I mean, to some extent, you see some of these sorts of things the Goldman example, when I look back on that, I think behavioral finance, people, if, if I said, what does behavioral finance mean to you? And ask the, sort of um, someone on the, well, so if I ask someone on the street, they'd probably say, what the hell are you talking about? But if I ask someone maybe from the industry, what does it mean? I think what they'd mostly say, and I think this is mostly what the CFA course focuses on as well, is they mostly say, oh, it's the silly types of behavior that individual investors make because they don't really know what they're doing. It's a word to that effect. It's about individual investors and their mistakes. And I would say, yeah, okay, there is a subset which is related to that. But you can also look at a different subset with maybe a small amount of overlap that relates to what are all the things that a professional investor or investment team need to be thinking about? What are all the things that apply to a corporate financial team? And again, that might overlap to some extent with the investment pressure professional. But there are different emphases and different things that are important in each of those groups. So, for example, with the professional investment team, it's not about, hey, I don't really understand what the acronym EPS stands for. Yeah, of course they understand what that that stands for. They know it's earnings per share and they want to know. All right, so they're not going to make some of those. But what are they going to be more affected by? They're going to be more affected by group dynamics when a bunch of people come together and are subject to, quote, unquote, group think, for example, and they're trying to incorporate sort of diversity in decision-making. The individual doesn't have to worry about that stuff, right? That, that is off the, their scale. They don't have to worry about financial forecasting here because they're not forecasting earnings per share. So none of us is immune. It's just that it's going to impact us differently in different ways. And I think that's sort of perhaps where the, when you say, where did the learning come from? So it's, I, th- I think it's partly sort of understanding the, some of the psychology, but then reflecting on what is 
the application for each of these groups differently. I re- remember listening to an episode where you talk about even the way we display information. So if you're a fund manager, the way you display information is so important. Yeah. So I can, uh, so there's a few things going on here. I mean, it's it, partly the way you display information it frames it in a way. So if I uh, change the scale on a chart, for example, which is one example that I have, I have tested, I've, I've given this to, uh, I don't know, four or 500 financial advisors at a conference and I've given them the same information, but change the scale from a logarithmic to a straight scale. Or I don't know, you, you can tinker with it in different ways and ask what is the risk of this or how would a client respond to that? And so you can get quite different answers depending on the type of scale. But one of my favorite examples, and I've tested this with individual investors through Livewire. We did a survey, again, four or 500 or so, in this case, retail investors, I think mostly SMSF investors, answered the survey. We split them into two groups. And I gave them a little scenario where it said something like, I don't know, you have to choose between fund manager A and fund manager B. You've got $100,000. You're going to work out the allocation, how you divide it between these two, invest- and these two managers. They're both essentially doing very something very similar. They're both in Australian equities. Both have a similar sort of... Um, level of credibility of their team, blah, blah, I don't know. It's very hard to distinguish with them between them. But here is their past performance. And so I gave them a table of, of returns and it's got manager A uh, is one row and then manager B is the second row. And then it's got a table of returns. So it will say, here's the three-month return, here's the six-month return, one year, three year, five years. So you're looking across the table and you can sort of see the returns relative to a benchmark. And that's what half of the group saw. And the other half, I gave them all the identical information, all the identical returns. But what I did was I switched the order in which those returns were shown so that instead of them seeing the three-month return on the left of the table, followed by six, followed by whatever, 12, all the way going from left to right, it was the reversed. So it started with the five-year, the longest-term return. And then after that, if they looked to the right, it was three years, then one year, then six months, and whatever. So everything identical except for the order. Now, in doing that, my theory was that so it's not my theory, but just reflecting on how people process information, is that in Western countries, we tend to read left to right. So we're probably going to see the thing on the left before we see the thing on the right. Secondly, we tend to be relatively lazy so that if I see the thing on the left, I might not even look to the right, for example. And then thirdly, this sort of confirmation bias or halo effect, if you like, comes in where that, that first thing that I see then influences how I interpret if, even if I look all the way to the right, I'm going to be influenced by how I interpret that. And so what I was expecting was that you wouldn't get a massive disparity where one group all said one thing and one group all said the other. That's not how this behavioral stuff works. It's often sort of nudges that impact people 5% here, 10% there. And what happened was 8 or 9%, I think, was the difference in this particular example. But the group who saw the short-term returns on the left were more disposed to invest in the manager that had the better short-term returns and the group that saw the long-term returns on the left, they were then more disposed to, to invest with the, the other manager, the one who had the better longer-term return. So my reflection to financial advisors, to investment managers, to super funds is to think pretty long and hard about what you want to, how you want to display your returns, either graphically or in table form, because if your message is, and this is what a lot of them say, hey, look, the short term is volatile, the short term is noisy, you really shouldn't look to what's happening in the short term because actually markets can go up and down and our style sometimes is out of favor and blah, 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 blah. If that's your message, and, and fair enough, that's the, I agree there's a lot of sense in that, well, let's not give people returns in an order that means that they look at the thing that is the thing we're trying to tell them to ignore first. We want to put that all the way on the right-hand side. That's an example where you get the complaints from the profession professional, whether it's super fund or, or advisor or fund manager saying, oh, but um, my clients will respond to this short-term returns. What can I do? I just keep telling them it should be focused on. 
They go, well, actually, the table that you're giving them is actually nudging them towards doing the thing you don't want them to do. So let's start by twisting that around. I love that. I love those subtle reminders that we don't even know necessarily impact us. And this is why I find this whole field fascinating. I remember when I worked at The Motley Fool, we lampooned the use of ticker symbols in messaging and internal messaging because the idea of a ticker symbol is to make it easier for us. And it kind of creates this disconnect between a ticker, like a stock price bouncing up and down, and a company. And a company is what you invest in. So we were only allowed to use company names when we spoke about businesses. And I just think those real subtle nudges, and sometimes people get annoyed with them, like, yeah, of course I know it's a business. But as a culture too, that can really impact the way that you conduct yourself. I found that quite powerful, pushing that message throughout the team. Yeah, and I I like the fact that that actually is an internal message because it's quite easy, I think, to say, we're all above this here. We all know what we mean, but actually our clients, they're the fools. (laughs) We need to do this for them. And I do have another example, the same sort of thing where we talked about that and and the um, response was, yeah, we're going to do this in our client engagement, but now when we produce board papers that are going to to our our trustee board to talk about manager selection or past performance or whatever we're doing. Yeah, let's do this for them as well. So this has to be part of our internal dialogue. Hmm, That's fascinating. So I was going to ask you for some book recommendations selfishly because I, as I said, I'm fascinated by this and I love books that aren't necessarily investing books. I mean, they could be. But the things that are really interesting to me are those books that touch on psychology and how that interplays with finance and investing. And I'm curious to know some of the more interesting reads that you've come across and what you've learned from them. Yeah, so I've got um, three, well, they're three books, but there's um, and associated materials. So the first one is by Michael Malbusen. Yeah, and it's hard to sort of nail it down to an individual book because he's just got so much good material and uh, whether it's in, in book form or some of his discussion papers that are quite often available online as well. But, I mean, to pick a book, let's go with uh, his book called The Success the Success Equation. So it's ostensibly not about investing, but it does have such investing parallels. So he's trying to untangle how much of the success of, say, a sporting team is related to their skill versus a bit of sort of randomness and and luck. And part of this you can do statistically by saying, well, let's look at the correlation between the team that was successful in the first half of the season, the team that's successful in the second half of the season. And if that, you don't expect a perfect correlation necessarily, but if the correlation's high, you can say, well, probably they've got some skills that have helped them carry forward for the rest of the season or maybe from one game to the next or whatever. I mean, of course, there's going to be some differences if they've lost players. And Okay, this is not perfect, but you get a sense of how consistency, what sort of the embedded attributes of that particular team are and whether it carries them forward. And when you look at that, you get quite different results by sport. So if you look at, well, going back to basketball, for example, okay, basketball was able to be high on that skill spectrum because one fluky shot, it doesn't change a game. You're up and down the court 50 times, and the scores might be, well, in the NBA now, they're ridiculous. The scores are sort of in the high hundreds, <laughs> 120, 140. Okay, so the skill level ultimately, a team that's 5% better should ultimately, well, fluky or there, it shouldn't matter too much, versus something like soccer where – if that ball just is inside the goalpost and goes in for a goal versus on the out, the whole game could <laughs> that, that could be the game right there. So he unpacks sports, unpacks the individual statistics in sports because some particular statistics might be more prone to luck and others are, are more uh, reflective of skill. Individual positions. So you look at the NFL, for example, the, the American football. 
and you go, well, what do we know about the, the punter, the guy who's kicking the ball? Well, his role is actually relatively independent of the team. You can take a good punter from one team and put him in another team and he'll do well. Versus a wide receiver, for example, the person who's catching the ball from the quarterback, um, how much would the past performance of a wide receiver be reflective of how well they perform in a different team? Not nearly as much. Because they're now dependent on the systems they play, the relationship with the quarterback, what else is going on in the team. And so you get all sorts of, so it's partly statistical, but you can look through it, I guess, to see well, what are the dynamics that drive it. And it's, I mean, the, the investment implications, I think, whilst not immediate, the immediate focus of the book, are quite clear. Investing is on that spectrum. It's probably more towards the luck end of the spectrum, certainly in the short term. Probably gets more towards the skill end over, over much longer periods. But you can try and unpack how much actually, if I'm doing a fund manager analysis, how much is really due to skill. If I'm thinking about my own past performance, how much of that can I attribute to skill versus luck? So I think there's, there's quite a bit in that. He writes some brilliant letters. Some of them are 20, 30, 40 pages long. I don't know how some people find the time to write such valuable prose so often, but he's one of those that you can get a lot, like you said, a lot of that stuff available online. He's done wonderful interviews as well. That's a good recommendation. I haven't come across that. Yeah, and I like him in part because he's quite sort of statistical and analytical in his thinking. So some of the things he's talking about are regression to the mean. They're thinking about base rates. It's sort of, it's a bit statistical, which can be a bit dry or certainly drier than some of the other sort of more sort of, I'm going to say touchy-feely, but sort of more sort of engaging content that's sort of more interpersonal. But this is the sort of stuff I think is particularly relevant for more technical aspects. If, if you're a serious investor, you need to know about these sort of statistical effects. So we're not particularly good at sort of intuitive statistics, as Kahneman would say. We're not good at intuitive statisticians. So I think his stuff is is awesome. On a similar theme, I'd go for Kahneman's uh, most recent book on noise. I haven't read this. So I think I often at my workshops, I often ask people how many people have read Thinking Fast and Slow. And then I get a, a few sort of half-raised hands. or And then I think, how many people have read half of Thinking Fast and Slow? And if quite a few more hands go up at that point. It's a bit, a bit heavy going. And this book on noise is somewhat similar. Again, it's a bit on the technical side. It's a bit on the sort of statistical side. He's sort of talking about regression models and correlations. And it's sort of, so it's a, it's a bit on, the, sort of on that sort of side of things. But again, I think particularly relevant for a whole range of in investment and corporate decisions. So he's looking at, so, so the main theme of the book is that mostly when you think about decision-making, you're thinking about biases. This is too high and that's too low. We should do more of this and less of that, that sort of stuff. It's sort of directional. Whereas what this book is about is less about whether we're too high or too low on average, but it's about how much variability is there around the average. Because we might be right on average, but if that means we're too high on one and too low on the other, well, we're still wrong. And so he's looking at things like a whole range of different examples, but in the justice system, for example, what you don't want is variability in the sentence that the same person would get at two, with two different judges or that two people with identical circumstances get, but one's, I don't know, male and one's female or one's dressed in a suit and one's not. So there's variability that leads to injustice in that case. You don't want, uh, in an insurance company, you don't want two people who are assessing a claim or judging a loss to on average, be right, but be you know, wildly different valuations or, or, or answers about whether they're going to pay a claim. So there's all these sorts of examples where the variability is actually crucial to getting more accurate decision-making. Mm, I love that. So we've got, with Malbison, we've got the kind of 
the luck versus skill and the risk of like luck going against you, I guess. And then we've got the variability where you don't want that. Yeah. 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 And they're, they're both sort of underpinned by, I don't know, a curve of uh, like a normal distribution and sort of thinking about some of that, that's sort of the underpinning of it, of both of them. And then how we misjudge the relationships between different parts of the curve or the width of the curve. And we can perhaps dig into that in a bit. But my third book is a little bit different from those two, if you like, with the third one. And this is one I've read more recently. So that noise book came out maybe a couple of years back and uh, Malbush Malbo- has been writing for it for ages. I think his success equation might be, I don't know. Anyway, it's a, it's a few years back now. But this last one maybe is in the last six months or so. It's called The Power of Regret by Daniel Pink. You know that one? I know Daniel Pink, but I don't know the book. Yeah, he's, I think... If you know Pink, he's, he's got a heap of good stuff as well. Again, so it's probably worth just looking him up and, and having a look at a bunch of his books. What he's done here is he's said, oh, I think this, this whole regret thing seems to be important. So let me do a bit of a bit more work in, in terms of understanding what it is. And he did this massive survey, not just in the US, but globally, where among other things, he's asked people to articulate a key regret they've had in their lives. And, and these are people of all sorts of different ages, different cultures, different countries. And then he said, well, what, now he's got all this qualitative data where people have described these regrets. And so he's now said, well, what is it that's sort of underpinning this? It's like massive data, but, but sort of what are the main dynamics that are leading to people to regret? And he's broken things into four different categories. And in each category, he's sort of saying, well, actually, it, it reveals a human need and goes into the detail. But to give you the idea of what's in those categories. So the biggest first one was what he called foundation regrets which are things like, I wish I had studied harder at school. I wish I had saved more for my retirement when I had lots of money when I was younger and I frivolously spent it on drinks at the bar. I wish I'd practiced harder my violin because now I'd be awesome if I could play. All this sort of, I wish I'd been more conscientious. I wish I'd invested more effort in my health, in my financial security, in my career, in my education, all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot, there's a lot of that. And the second one is sort of counter to that, which is I wish I'd been more bold. Uh, I wish I'd started my business uh, rather than stuck in the career that I didn't like. I wish I'd asked that girl out I had a crush on in high school, but I was too nervous or like, all those sorts of, I wish I was just a bit more bold and assertive. I wish I'd taken that course that I always had a dream that I would do, but my career counselor said, no, no, you should do something else or whatever. But, so there's, there's a boldness sort of regrets. And then a third category, which was less prevalent, were, were moral ones, which often were, I wish I didn't cheat on my partner. I wish I didn't steal that chocolate bar from the shop when I was six. <laughs> I wish I didn't cheat on that school test when I was nine. I don't know. It's funny how these sort of things sort of stay with people quite often for years and years and years, and they just wish, wish they could go back and, and change some of those sort of moral things. And then the fourth category were, I think, what he called um, connectiveness or connection-type regrets, which were often about relationships that had just sort of drifted apart. I wish I'd kept in contact with my best friend from school, I wish I got to know my estranged sister who's left for a different country, or I wish I'd put invested more effort into, it's all that sort of relationship stuff. They're not really investment stuff, although it does link in with investments because this is talking about the trade-offs that you make in life and how much do you invest in your career versus your family and, and some of those sorts of things. And, and what do you do with this information? So can you, should you leave a, a lead or try to lead a life of regret minimization I'm trying to do, I've now looked at these lists and I'm sure as hell going to make sure I don't do all these things that people now regret. Should I dwell on these things or how should I reflect on them? So there's, there's quite a lot in there, I think, which is quite interesting. If I'm not mistaken, he's uh, written quite a few books as well. 
I remember reading quite a bit about him through the, the Knowledge Project or the Farnham Street blog, which is a fantastic blog. Um, I'd be surprised if you haven't come across it. It's from Shane Parrish in the US. Okay, so we've got some books here which clearly enable all of us to go away from this and think to ourselves, well, how can we kind of start to develop this in ourselves, whether we're financial professionals or not? But a big thrust of this conversation was I basically went to you and said, hey, these are the things that I think our listeners and myself are interested in. And you come back with what I will paraphrase is basically like, how do you cope with uncertainty? And this idea that as investors, as people in business and so on and so forth, even just in our daily lives, we have so much uncertainty around us and how we rationalize or don't rationalize things is so fascinating because even decisions that we think without bias aren't, it seems. And so I'm just kind of going to play just the dummy here and just ask questions as you go on and tell us about how to identify uncertainty, how you cope with it, how you mitigate some of the biases that come into effect. I mean, there's so much we can go on and this is very relevant to investing. Yeah, I'm pretty keen to talk about this, I think, because it's so fundamental to a lot of decision-making issues. So I think you're completely right that it's it's related to all these areas of life, but but also when you look at decision-making research. So you, you and your listeners have no doubt come across the idea of anchoring, that if I say the number five, you've now got the number five in your head. I say it five times, you're thinking about five, all right, I've just repeated five. Okay, clearly the number five now would be an anchor. And in fact, quite often I'm running exercises with groups and I'm trying to show them the importance of anchoring. I don't have to do that. I can put on a piece of paper. I don't even have to mention it. All right, so it's really, really powerful, influences people a lot, right? So now you should be thinking about five. But if I then asked you, hey, what's one plus one? You're not going to go three and a half, four maybe, I don't know, four and a half. The anchor doesn't, is not going to drag your answer up from two up towards five. No, because there's no uncertainty. So it's really only when there's uncertainty that these decision-making issues become relevant. However, we are bad at a whole range of things. Well, you could say, for example, what I need to do then is I need to avoid as best I can making decisions where there is just a lot of uncertainty. Okay, awesome. Let's let's try that. So there's more. there tends to be more uncertainty, for example, in the short term than there is in the, in the longer term. So, and, and what I mean by that is, I don't know, look at daily share price movements. It's completely noisy and, and uncertain, whereas it starts to become more systematic over, over longer periods of time. Or look at company results. Quarterly results, yeah, they're going to be a bit volatile. Well, you could have had a bad customer, lose a big customer one quarter, but then gain one back. Okay, is it more volatile? Okay, so the longer we look at that, or even looking at industries instead of companies, individual companies, well, they might have had a, a flood of a mine or something, but overall the industry gives you a better picture. So I could say what I want to do is try and avoid sort of short-term things and look for the longer term where there's less uncertainty. So I, I could potentially do that. Other examples are I could look at the things that research has shown we are just very bad at predicting, even though it feels like I know what's going to happen. So what would be in that category would be things like geopolitics. So uh, look at um, Expert Political Judgment by Philip Tetlock, if you, have you read that one? No. Yeah, uh, it's uh, another awesome read to add to your reading list. Uh, there's another book he's got out called Super Forecasters, more recent, you've, you've come across that one. But the, I mean, the Expert Political Judgment is sort of a foundational book that sort of leads to some of the stuff that goes on subsequently. But what he did then uh, is go to a whole range of different forecasters 
and ask them questions like, oh, sorry, and, and when I say forecasters, these aren't like often these, these studies with their university students stuck in a lab and they don't really do that, but this is credit you're going to get for your psychology course, so please answer some questions. It's not like that at all. So he went to people in the CIA or intelligence agencies around the world. He went to top academics uh, in their field. He went to sort of government organizations. He went to people who should know about geopolitics. And he asked them questions that were relevant from their field or related field. So, for example, do you think the careers will reunify? Do you think the Berlin Wall will collapse or be torn down? So you can see this is going back a while. Do you think Canada will split? All this sort of stuff. And because it's gone on for such a long time, he's had these forecasts over years and years and years, collected all this data about who's giving forecasts, often things like their probabilities they assessed as being correct. He's kept records of them seen who was right, who was wrong, go back, ask them about their thinking. So all this wealth of data. And I mean, there's a few conclusions that come from it, but the resounding conclusion is that we have very little idea about geopolitics. And it's not we, just regular human beings. This is people with expertise in these particular areas. So geopolitics, economics, um, predicting sort of uh, M&A transactions, I'd put those all in the same sort of category of just the evidence for our ability to predict these things is so low that I would be hesitant about incorporating them in because of the uncertainty in them into a decision-making process versus focusing on things where there's a higher degree of certainty, like, hey, this company just made a million dollars last year and it's, everything's going the same this year. But yes, it might be different, but that's a better idea than going, actually, I'm predicting a geopolitical event. Can I ask a question to follow up on this then? Is there any research or do you have a theory at least around subject matter experts and this kind of overconfidence? Maybe you're getting to this in a minute, but I find with some investors that the more they know, at least some of them, the more precise they try to be, which means they're more wrong, if that makes sense. And they, maybe they eventually reach a point in time where they think, oh, well, I was so wrong about all these different things. Maybe I shouldn't weight those decisions so highly in my portfolio or those positions, et cetera. Yeah. The Tetlock work, I think, gives a hint to this, but other work reinforces it, which is that there's there's almost a, what would this be, a, a, an inverse U-shape relationship where at the start of the, of the if I know nothing, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be poor. Okay, fine. Well, not fine, but yeah, all right. That's my starting point. Then as I know more information, I do get more accurate and my confidence rises quite often not at the same rate. So there's a risk that I'm becoming overconfident. But as I become more expert at quite often a niche field, I can become less accurate. And so what Tetlock was saying was, if you wanted to get the best response about that Berlin Wall question, for example, well, I could go to an East German versus West German expert, for example, who should know everything about that field. Actually, I'm more likely to get a better response for someone who is just an expert at European politics because, I mean, there's a bunch of things going on, but partly it's because you get diminishing returns from the specialization. So the more and more I know about German relations, I'm getting less and less value from that versus if I can take another lens with a different perspective, the marginal benefits I get from saying, yeah, but what normally happens in Europe? Or sort of thinking about that broader context. So it's often it's it's almost like a cognitive diversity, but within the individual. So it's like the diversity within. I think some people refer to it as saying, I need to incorporate these multiple perspectives to get a better view than taking a single, often ideologically driven view 
And so what Tetlock referred to it was he, he broke these forecasters into two groups. He called one group foxes and one group hedgehogs. And the foxes were sort of a bit of this and a bit of that, but maybe this and maybe that sort of probabilistic sort of multiple perspectives, trying to combine them into one sort of overall outcome versus the hedgehogs who were more, I believe in democracy, for example, that might be this, this case. Okay, therefore the ball at Berlin Wall will fall because of democracy. I don't know, that, I mean, in this case, obviously we know the Berlin Wall did fall, but that, that will be the example of I'm less prone to incorporate multiple perspectives because I've got my one view of the world and then I'm less prone to being amenable to change that if I get sort of different information. So I think in, in response to your question there, I think it, the problem isn't that the person knows too much. It's that they perhaps it's crowding out the other perspectives that could also contribute to a more accurate answer for them. So this comes back to one of those remarks that many great investors have told me is that just that they prefer to be generally correct rather than you know specifically right. At least that's what they're aiming for because they don't know all the probabilities. And if they spent too much time going into those, into the minutiae of every, say, company or position or whatever they're trying to do, they end up either getting analysis paralysis or making mistakes because they don't see the forest from the trees. So they think, well, let's step back and let's keep, what heuristics can I use? Even though they might not be very palatable to a client, they have seemed to have a better hit rate than the alternative. And I'm not saying that's, I'm not advocating for everyone to do that, but a lot of people have made that remark to me. Yeah, I, I would I'd be even bolder than you and, and say that for most people, I think that's, sorry, in the context where there's uncertainty, what we need to do is to find what are the one or two or maybe three big ticket things. And actually, this is an example. This is one of the things I, I do with um, investment teams. And it's a bit of fun, actually. So I go in and they talk about noise and decision-making stuff. And I'll say, okay, let's, I just got a question for you. If you had a stock and you know absolutely nothing about it, right? I'm not going to even tell you its name. You don't know anything about it. And, but you can ask me for three pieces of information about that stock. All right. So you can ask me for its P ratio or it's, or it's, I don't know, it's industry or it's this or it's that. All right. Three things. You can't ask me for its name so you can go and Google it. You can't ask me for its annual report so you can read the whole thing. Three specific pieces of information. And the reason I'm doing this is partly because this is how some research has been set up where they'll give like horse racing punters and say, what, what would three bits of information you want? And the punters might go, all right, wins in the last three starts and tell me the, how much rain the tracks had and I don't know. Okay, so that's what the so I'm trying to sort of replicate that piece of those that, that sort of domain of research and say, all right, you have a go. It's an investment context. What three bits of information would you want? I'd want to know if it, the the company is run by a uh, like what I call an owner operator, it's like a, either a founder or a family or something like that. Okay, one. I would want to know is the business in a cash positive like cash net cash position. And I would want to know the growth of revenue over the past five years. Okay, awesome. And by the way, I should say, I am, am in no way trying to suggest I have the right answer or you have the wrong answer or there is a right answer necessarily. So what I'm trying to do, I guess, in these sort of cases is often to flesh out differences in the group and also the trade-offs that we're trying to make because it's a difficult question and it's often one that is not, I think, sufficiently asked. So it's a, it's a discipline that we don't do. And so it triggers then a conversation around the table. So in, in your case, for example, you haven't asked for the industry. You've got no idea what this company does, for example. I'm not saying that's, that's bad, but some people in the other room, around the room would go, actually, you know what? I want to know what this thing does before you tell me whether it's got cash. Because if it's selling widgets or, or if it, I don't know, something, then I don't want to buy it full stop. 
Um, so it's a difficult question, but the discipline of being able to focus on three things, I think it's, it's, it's a challenge which is insufficiently articulated and therefore we haven't developed the skills in, in, in being able to do it. And I do have another example of a little exercise that I use as well, which I think is sort of brings out some of the, the same sorts of dynamics where I give people a string of colored squares or rectangles are actually, and, and they're just all green and blue. So it might be a green one, then a green one, then a blue one, then a blue one, then a green one, then a green one. I don't know. So you get an idea. There's a sequence of them across the screen. And what I'll say to them is, can you please predict, let's just imagine a scenario where I'm going to give you $10 for each of the next 10 squares where you can predict the right color in the right place for the next each of the next 10. So imagine another 10 appear on the right of this. And they'll, I'm sure they're thinking of if they're not saying, yeah, but how are we supposed to do this? Are these just random or how have you selected and so I give them more information. I say, look, this is supposed to be like an investment scenario. These things aren't completely random. I haven't just flipped a coin and randomly put green and blue squares on the, on the board. But neither is it completely systematic, right? It's a bit of a combination, a bit like investing. There's a bit of unpredictability, but, there's, it's, but it's not completely random. Okay, you're going to predict the next, the next 10 uh, colored squares. And what typically happens is that they'll look at this. And to be honest, it looks like an obvious pattern. You can see there's a couple of blues at the start and there's a couple of blues at the end. And it sort of looks like the blue, the, these two blues are in a bit of a sequence and you probably can predict the next the sequence to come. And so I, when I looked at these colors, I thought, yeah, there's a predictable sequence. This is going to be too easy. Uh, everyone's going to see it. But it's not actually quite that straightforward because you could, like you, some people just do a copy and paste, like here's my 10, I'm going to copy and paste and just do another 10 in the, exactly the same sequence. Or they could say, well, look, that last green square looks like it's a repeat of the first one. So I'm going to actually take the last nine and paste that, that on the end, for example. And, or they might go, oh, anyway, so there's a, there's a few different permutations. And the challenge I'm trying to give them is to not only win the most money, but actually see if they can forecast better than a rat. <laughs> All right, so I'm putting the pressure on them. <laughs> Can you forecast better than a rat? And some do, because what? So, and, and just just to explain what the rat would do. The, in a study where you have a rat involved, you wouldn't sit the rat down and go, "Listen, rat, there's blue and green squares here, and like, there's some rat." Okay, the rat's not going to understand that. But what you do is you put the rat in a maze, and instead of it being a green square, it's the cheeses on the left of the maze. Instead of it being the blue square, the cheese on the right. Right. So the rat's gone to the maze once. All right, it was on the left. Next time on the right. Next time on the right. Next time on the okay. So the rat effectively has seen the sequence, but it's now left and right cheese for the rat. Now, what does the rat do when you put the the rat in on the eleventh time? Mm. Any predictions? I'm going to guess it just did what it did the time before. Yeah. So close. It it does what it has had most success at. So if the cheese is mostly on the left, it goes to the left. If the cheese is mostly on the right, it goes to the right. So the rat isn't going, hey, you know what? I think it was a sequence of left, right, 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 left, 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 right, right, So It doesn't do that. It goes, I don't know where the damn cheese is, but I think it's more likely to be on the left than the right. Well, it might not think, think that it doesn't articulate in those words, obviously, but that's broadly what, it's, what its behavior appears to suggest it's thinking. Okay. Now that actually is more optimal than the human strategy because the problem with the human strategy is that we fail to incorporate the bit of randomness in there. Each of those sequences that people have identified when they've gone for the copy and paste or the copy and paste minus one or, the, or all the other ones, each of them is sensitive to one slight variation. If one of those blue squares had been a green square, their pattern is completely screwed. Anyway, I reveal to them where this pattern had come from. And the pattern has come from my daughter rolling a die. And, and if it was a one or a two, then it's a blue square. And if it's a three, four, five, or six, then it's a green square. And so effectively what they're trying to do is to identify 
Actually, there's more green squares here than there are blue. That's the main thing that's going on. That's the underlying big ticket thing. That's what the rat worked out. The rat worked out there's more yellows than more sort of left on the cheese on the left than, than, than on the right. But the human doesn't. The human's too sophisticated, has looked at too much detail, failed to incorporate the uncertainty in there, and then missed the big ticket. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love this because when I speak to a lot of investors and I look at those investors throughout time, what I find is that many investors who are professional investors, they tend to think it's a distinct path. Professional investor learn a lot rise to the ranks and then become private investors and do their own money and whatever. And when they get to the level of private investor, they tend to be a lot more what would seem like blasé about how they allocate money. They're almost like, yeah, it seems to do something that I like. A kind of like eyeballed the CEO seems to say all the right things. It's like those accumulated heuristics just poured into a thesis that could be boiled down to maybe one or two sentences. And it's to your point, like there's three things that matter and just identifying like a very general pattern and acknowledging the risk and uncertainty of being wrong. But that's how they distill it down. And I see that as like a gift amongst so many investors. I've never really truly thought at at length about this, but I do see that with a lot of successful investors who just break it down to the three things that matter. And they just go, well, weighting it probabilistically, it's probably going to be over here. Yeah. And I think I would add to it that sometimes the things that we that aren't important can influence us without us really knowing. So, so meeting the CEO is an interesting one. So when, when I'm talking about the things that are important and things that aren't important and some things that aren't important but they can attract our attention and influence us more than they should, and this is called the dilution effect. So effectively the, the stuff that's important gets diluted down. These important things should weigh up to 80%, but because I'm focused on these other things over here, actually that turns into 30% and then the big stuff turn, is, has to, is diluted down to 70 or, or all that sort of thing. But going back to the, I've met the CEO example. So when I've asked people, for example, like these are professional investment teams, well, what are some of the things that sort of not important or that might perceive to be important or sort of, sort of dancing around the issues of, of what these most important things should be? Anyway, one person said, uh, I would never invest in a company where the CEO has a moustache. <laughs> Uh, and it was a bit tongue in cheek when, when she yeah. when she said that, but but I love that example though because that's the moustache is going to be highly noticeable. All right, you you cannot avoid seeing it <laughs> if you meet, meet the CEO. And I don't know whether there is any relation. I've never done a statistical analysis of whether companies managed by CEOs with moustaches do better or worse than other companies. And if there is a relationship, my suspicion is it's a, a pretty poor correlation. It'll be down my list of things. So it's not up, not up there. But some of those interpersonal things, I think, are the ones that can slip through relatively undetected. They're quite powerful. Often things like body language as well. That's another thing I'm often talking to people about because it's people will advocate using body language and reading body language. And you've got to read the room and, okay, fine. Yeah, there's some sense in that. I agree. However, when you look at studies that will look at how much meaning can I take from different sources. Okay. So let, let me give an example. So there's a, one of the studies which I, I often refer to has somebody who's reading out a story or a narrative or something, and, and they've got a little slider bar that's maybe under the table. And as that person is feeling more positive, they're moving the slider bar to one side. And if they're feeling more negative or down and sort of emotionally, they move it to the other side. And the task that other people have got is that they have to try and replicate what they think the, the person reading the, the, this uh, content, what their emotion is at the time. Okay, so but now we've got different groups. So one group is watching the video and can hear it, can see it, sort of got the full experience. 
another group can only see the person who's reading it, but can't hear what they're saying. And a third group can hear what they're saying, but can't see them. They've just got the audio. All right. So of those three groups, which group do you think is most accurate? This is interesting. I think the one that can just, I'm going to say just hear them, but the, uh, maybe I'm biased to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are on a podcast talking about audio, hey? But I'd say most people would say seeing them and hearing them. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the expectation. So, I mean, it's, it aligns with give me more information, I'll make, make a better decision. And, and that's sometimes true, but not nearly as true as we might think. And you are right with your, with your guess. So it's the audio version. And that's not to say that the body language is giving us no information because the people who are only watching are doing better than random. So they, they're picking up something meaningful. Uh, the body language has got some value. However, it's a bit like the moustache again. It has some value, but it's diluting the things that have more value, which is listening to the words and the tone of voice and the speed and all that sort of stuff that comes from the audio. It's much more important that you focus on what they're saying and how they're saying it than watching their body language. And that's, I think, a great example. And it's so many ways that you can interpret body language. I think that's, that's the, I mean, I always talk about crossing, someone crossing their arms. What does it mean to you if I cross my Normally arms? Normally that means that someone's disinterested. I think that's the interpretation. Well, I get different interpretations of the interpretation. So are they disinterested? Are they angry? Are they trying to hide something? Are they cold because the air condition is too high? Have they spilt something on their shirt, which they want to hide because they're a bit embarrassed if they've got a bit of soup from their lunch on their shirt? I, I don't know. Anyway, so this, this is the problem. There's multiple in interpretations and you really need the context to interpret it, uh, interpret it correctly. But generally, as a, as a general rule, focusing on what they're saying in their tone of voice rather than their body language is like those colored squares. It's like saying, what's the big ticket thing? There's more greens than blues or whatever, whatever it was. So, okay, so there's so many fascinating things here. So we've got kind of like the three big things that matter in, I guess, an investment thesis, if you're thinking as an investor at home listening to this. And then I guess also that rat idea of like identifying themes and like the not trying to get stuck down in the detail necessarily because it sounds like our brains overcomplicate things. And when you were saying that before, the idea of the humility curve popped into my head, which is, I don't, I don't know if you've come across this. It's kind of like a... I guess it's not really backed in theory, but it's this idea that as our, if you've got on the axis, you've got time spent investing and up the vertical axis, you've got complexity. And what tends to happen is as people start, they start off very basic, like what is a share? Maybe I'll just go buy NAB shares. And then they think, oh, well, you can buy growth stocks and then you can buy, oh, and you can buy these things called CFDs. And then all of a sudden you've, you're at the peak of humility and then you just come crashing back down. Um, or lack of humility, I should say. So you come crashing back down, investing becomes simpler. And that's what I was reminded of when you said that. I guess some of the, the takeaways for people that are at home might be like, well, how can you mitigate some of these things? Yeah. I think one, as a general rule, it's, there's a value in simplicity. So, I mean, people say simplicity is good and it feels good in a sense because it's easy to explain and uh, complexity is more, more effortful. Okay, there's, there's some benefit that... But actually, from a decision-making perspective, from I just want from the perspective of I just want to be as accurate as possible in my decisions. When we are dealing with complexity and uncertainty, there's value in simplicity. In that I'm actually going to my decisions are likely to be more right. My model is likely to be more robust to changes and variability. 
I mean, it's, it's the concept of, well, statistical concept of overfitting. Mm. I've got this model with, which I've just run through my multiple regression analysis and it's come out with 15 variables and I've got this perfectly plotted curve that marries them all up. And so my least square, uh, my least squares are minimized and all that sort of stuff. However, the little tweak at the end, which is perfectly fitted to the data, is now completely spuriously accurate because really there's a lot of noise in there. And what I probably should have done is just drawn a straight line with based on two or three of the main variables. And this is what Daniel Kahneman talked about in his noise, his book about noise, uh, for example. All of this research, and this is why um, we look at human judgment versus algorithms and go, oh gosh, we're going to be taken over by AI and it's going to be a disaster. And uh, Yeah, okay, but if you look historically at how well humans have done against machines, it's, and when I say machines, I mean sort of algorithms, not Terminator wandering around <laughs> with a machine gun. <laughs> uh, but, so how well have we done against algorithms? The answer is pretty poor as a general rule, but it's not because the algorithms are super smart, data genera- generating sort of machine learning super organisms. That's not the case at all. What often it is, is that the expert in their field has said, oh, you know what? The main three things are, a, B, and C. I'll just create a simple linear model using A, B, and C. All right, I've got now, okay, let me use me as the expert versus my model over here. And when you give me the, a case study of a, of a stock or if it's a, the horse racing punter example or it's a clinical psychologist trying to diagnose depression or it's a heart surgeon trying to, whatever it is, now the heart surgeon looks at the data and goes, oh yeah, I've got that simple model over here, but I can see that Mary Jane is blah, 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 blah. And effectively, they are overfitting their own mental model, creating a narrative that is effectively finding that pattern in the noise again. And my model doesn't know as much as I do, the heart surgeon. Yeah, I've got more information. But the model, because it's consistently applying the main things, often does as well as, if not better than the expert. So it's sort of reinforcing the same point. But the other interesting part is what happens if you go to the expert and say, I'm going to give you that simple model, which you developed yourself, by the way, in many cases, all right? You've got the outcome there and you've got your own judgment, all right? And why don't you just combine those two things together? And, and you can, if you think the model's right, you can go with the model, but if you, well, that doesn't work either because you, you think the model's too unsophisticated, too simple, I know more than the model and you override it too much. And so there's a, now a whole lot of domain about how can we integrate some of these sort of judgment models and yeah, but it's, all along the same sorts of problems with using too too much noisy, less significant information. This is a completely out of left field question, but I was chatting to a really, uh, I would say is a successful investor yesterday. And we were just chatting before we recorded a podcast and he was talking about how communication is really important with his investors and, and these types of things. And he was saying that you know, versus an index fund, and an index fund just makes one decision to replicate the index. Yes, in that same period, we probably make 10,000 decisions. Because he was just saying, you know, we make a decision not to buy this, to research that, to run this filter, all of these different little decisions. And I'm curious, this is just completely out of left field. With decision making, the amount of decisions that we make, would you say that if you are pursuing, whether it's active management or even if you're passive and you're just creating a portfolio, Fewer decisions tend to result in better decisions? Well, there's this issue of the fatigue. So this is this is why Barack Obama said he always used to wear the same suit because uh, he didn't want to have to use up any of his mental capacity making a judgment about his clothing when he was thinking, <laughs> thinking about sort of 
bombing sort of terrorists or, or, or something a bit more significant. So, and there's some studies which you can potentially question about their validity, but there's some famous ones that some people have seen, uh, possibly some listeners have come across, like this one of judges. Have you come across the one of... I vaguely remember this. So the idea of it is that I think they were judging the parole applications and the study was looking at the proportion of people who were, whose the parole application was accepted, but, uh, but varying across the time of the day. And so... If I remember it correctly, I think the parole applications that happened in the morning, more of them were accepted and then the numbers dropped off and, until it got to sort of snack break time and then after break time it's, it was higher again and then it dropped off towards lunch and then after lunch it was higher and then it dropped off again. And I guess that the, the message that this research would suggest that, that many people have, have conveyed as a result of it is that the fatigue that we feel from not just sort of the decisions that have come before us that are sort of wearing us down, but also the fact that I might be getting hungry and sort of physically tired or maybe need to get up and get some exercise is changing the decision so that we're more likely to go with a default option, the tighter, the more run down I become. I think there's some sense in that because you, you just do not want to be making a big, important or a creative decision when you're tired. And so there's is it pink. No, it wasn't pink. Anyway, there's a, there's a, book that I can't, actually it was called When, I can't remember who the author was, uh, which is talking about, well, you need to think about what time of day is best to make what types of judgments and creative decisions might be different analytical decisions and not everybody's the same. So some people are morning people and afternoon people, but certainly the time of day does seem to make a difference. And I, I know for myself that, yeah, I, I don't want to be doing something. I, I put my administrative tasks sort of late in the afternoon. That's, I don't want to be thinking something critical or important uh, at, at that point. So I think there's there's some sense in that, even if you can't – I mean, the, the judges thing, that the, the differences was huge. And so people have looked at that and questioned, gone, really? Can the differences be that big? And so some people have said, well, maybe it's – alternative explanation is the judges are just putting their hard cases towards the end because it's – they want to get a whole bunch of easy cases out of the way or I don't know. There's alternative potential explanations. But I think the, the broad theory about the, the amount of cognitive effort – now, cognitive effort, so your question was about numbers of decisions. So I'd be thinking how many of those decisions are effortful, how much effort is, re- is required for them. So if I'm making, what would you say, thousands of decisions or something? He was just, maybe it's a bit of hyperbole saying, maybe I make 10,000 decisions in six months. Decisions not to do something, decisions to do something, decisions for waiting, selling, buying. So many little micro decisions. Yeah, yes. So I'd be careful about the timing of, the most important ones of those decisions. So it, you say micro decisions. So the key, the key decisions are when I take an action. So it, may, it doesn't really matter what I've done up until the point I've, I've taken an action, I guess. So that action-making decision. So one of the things I'll talk to about um, with uh, active managers is trying to manage their cognitive load so that the amount of resources they've got at their disposal to think effectively. Now, one of the challenges they'll have is that corporate reporting season comes out. Suddenly, all the stocks they're following are reporting. There's a whole wealth of new information. There's conference calls. There's a whole lot of stuff coming up. They've got to update their models. They've got to rethink the strategy. All that sort of stuff is going on. Okay, so this is the time when two things are taking place. One is I've got a whole lot of information. The second thing is I'm overwhelmed. All right, so this is the, a bad time to be making decisions. So what solutions are there to that? Well, a couple of things would be to what extent, well, well, actually, it's the same theme. Can I move my decision-making away from that point where I'm overwhelmed? That's when I'm most likely to be impacted by decision-making bias, be it the default bias or various other things. So to what extent can I push some of that cognitive load earlier? So how much pre-analysis can I do so that when the corporate results come out, 
I know the two things I'm looking for in the annual report. I, I want to see what their margins have done this year because I'm a bit concerned they might be compressed by inflation, cost inflation or something. Okay, so I know what I'm looking for. I've done my pre-work so that when that hump comes, I've now got less work to do then. Or to what extent can I push the decision out past that date by going, I'm going to do my pre-work, sorry, I'm going to do my work when the results come out. However, I don't want to make a decision right now because I know this is when I'm most overwhelmed. I actually want to postpone it until I've got a little bit more time. And maybe it's not just me. Maybe this is a group decision my team needs to make together. Okay, so we're going to put an investment committee out another week out in advance. And some people say, no, my investment timeframes are so compressed. I sometimes need to make a decision straight away. And okay, fair enough. But that's not always the case. So for longer term decision making, I'm just going to put my investment committee meeting out a bit into the future so that I'm past this peak. We can now sit down, have a sort of a clear head, look at it for a second time and make a decision. So they're the sorts of thing I'd be thinking about trying to manage my cognitive load if I have to make the most important critical decision. One question, I don't know if I've mentioned to you, was this idea of balancing conviction with risk management. Because when I did, I was part of a study that we did on active managers quite a while ago, and we found that more concentrated or what we would maybe say is managers with more conviction, they have fewer positions, tend to weight those bigger, on average, as a whole of our cohort, tended to outperform those active managers who had more diversified portfolios. And it was quite significant to the point of maybe two or three percent, so 200 basis points per annum over five or seven years. And I guess the question is, how do you balance, yes, the risk of overconfidence with, I guess, the potential and conviction that you have in something. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't seen the methodology you followed in there, but the, the first alarm bell that is ringing with any type of analysis of that sort of ilk, and you, you might have addressed it, um, but I'll put this question to you anyway, mm-hmm. which is the, the selection bias, the potential for selection bias in there. So that what we're looking at is not just a cohort of high conviction versus lower conviction managers. What we're looking at is the high conviction managers who have been successful because the high conviction managers who punted on the wrong things have all gone out of business and you're not surveying them anymore. So you're basically just looking at a the survivorship bias. The survivorship bias, that's yeah. right. And that was probably in there, to be honest. And another thing that may have been in there is the universe wasn't the complete universe, I don't think. I think it was maybe 50% of the active funds in the country. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, that's sort of methodological questions, but important ones. But to the broader question of managing conviction. So I I guess looking at the decision-making research there, what I try and implore people to do without suggesting I've got one best approach um, in any any sense would be to say you just want to make sure that the level of confidence you have, which is translated presumably into position sizing, is calibrated with reality. So if you feel like you're 90% sure an investment would, will result in this particular range of outcomes that in 90% of cases in the future, they do end up in that range that you think you're 90% sure about. And that is no easy task because if you look at, well, you can, you can, I, I do this example all the time as well, which is to ask people to give me a, a range they're 90% sure something will fall within. Have you, have you done these exercises? No, no. Yeah, so you can go online and do this. So I mean, there'll, there'll be all sorts of tests where they'll say, well, do you want to have a crack? Sure, it's good okay, okay. So, so here's one. What's the distance from the Earth to the Moon? All right, and bef- sorry, before before you, I know I can see you rolling your eyes, and that's and fair enough. Okay, so I'll give you an easy. I'll give you an easier task though. So rather than tell me your point estimate, 
So I want you to give me two numbers, right? The top number is going to be the number you think there's only a 5% chance it's further away than that. It's only a 5% chance it's further away than that. Yeah. And just while you're thinking about that, the, the other number is a number that is the bottom end of your range where you think there's only a 5% chance it's closer than that. Now, some people at this point will say, I've got this, Simon. I'm going to go one meter to a billion light years. All right. And yeah, it'll be in that range. But what you're telling me is that there's a 5% chance it's closer than a meter, which clearly is not the case. So you, you just got to try and get that. And, and if you're an anima, amateur astronomer and you go, I know what I'm talking about here, you might go, I've got a fairly narrow range. And if you've got no idea, it might be a wide range. It's just supposed to be the range because you've got the top end, you think it's 5% chance it's higher and low at the bottom end, it's 5% chance it's lower. Effectively, you're giving me a range of 90% sure it lies within. Oh, I'm going to say... 100,000 kilometers at the top end of the range. And at the bottom end, I'm going to say 5,000 kilometers. There you go for round figures. Yeah. And so you're 90% sure it's in that range? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> or should I tell you the answer? <laughs> Please. Uh, 284,000. Wow. Yeah, 284,000. So it's, it's about one light second. It takes uh, the distance light travels in about eight seconds. Uh, As a big like space geek, I should have known this. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. But it's, I mean, you can't exactly look at the moon and go, yeah, I can change. Yes, I bore that, yeah. <laughs> no, you can't. I mean, I, I've had people going, oh, well, how fast did the rocket go? And it took 20 hours to get there. People are trying to judge it in different, in different ways. But the idea is this is something with uncertainty, all right? So how well do you judge the uncertainty in your decision, which is reflected in how wide your range is? So I'm not judging whether you, whether you got it right or not necessarily, and it's hard with a sample of one. So in this case, your range might well have been accurate, but if I have a room full of 100 people, which I often do when I'm doing this sort of thing, and I ask them to give 90% ranges like this, I should find that 90% of people get the answer in their range. Mm. It's not even close. All right? it's, it's closer to 50%. Okay? And, and it's not just about the moon. I've done this with all sorts of – and you can go online and do this. It will ask you what year did, I don't know, Genghis Khan die or how long is the Nile. In each case, you're giving a 90% sort of range. So you don't have to be an expert on history or geography or anything. And I've done it with investment scenarios where I've asked people to give me a range where I think the ASX 200 will be in 12 months and then we've compared it with volatility assumed in the VIX and historical range and all that sort of stuff. It's just – so, so easy to demonstrate this one because we are so poor at getting that 90% range right. And it's a criticism, I guess, of people because we just haven't had a chance to practice it. Because if you do practice it, you can get a damn sight better at it. So I was exactly the same when I started doing this. I'm like, holy smoke, I was out by a mile. And, and I got five out of 10 or something. All right, the next time I did it, I thought, oh, I've got, I know what to do. I'm just going to make my ranges a bit wider. And I did it again with different questions. And I got like seven, I thought. Gosh, I didn't even make them wide enough then. Uh, and until eventually I sort of iterated and eventually get to the point where, yeah, now when I do this sort of thing, I've got a good sense of where my 90% range is, but we don't get practice at it. And so that's, I forget what, what led us to this conversation, uh, other than that we're just not very good at Oh, the conviction. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So we're not very good at understanding whether our, the confidence we feel is actually aligned to the reality in the amount of uncertainty in our decisions. That, yeah, that's, that's what I was trying to get to which partly might go to, I just need to get that feedback so that I can learn. So I think a big part of this is, do you have decision-making analytics that allows you to make predictions? It doesn't have to be 90% confidence range. You can, I don't know, have high and low scenarios that you think uh, assign probabilities. It's not one necessary way to do it. But the key theme here is that without sufficient practice and feedback, 
there can be a, maintained a, a significant disconnect between the amount of uncertainty we feel and the amount of uncertainty in those decisions that actually exists in reality. I'm going to loop back to the previous question and just remember something that, as you're saying, which is I notice in decision fatigue, I notice that people are typically much better at podcasting, like as guests, in the morning than they are in the evening. But we are recording this in the afternoon. And you're doing a tremendous job. So I thought I'd just drop that in there. Uh, just imagine how awesome it would be if you did it in the morning. <laughs> yeah, imagine. Next time it's 9am or even earlier. There was a few other questions that I have around risk-taking. And one of them was, how do you think about risk-taking in your own life? Are the things that you might do, other than really trying to dunk, that you think, maybe other people don't do this, or maybe other people don't think this way. Yeah, I, I've actually got a few examples. I, I'll let you tell me whether you think other people think this way or not. But but th- th- these are the things that, uh, so I'm particularly focused on how people perceive risk. So I'm trying to find, I guess, the things that people perceive as being risky, which I don't think are actually risky. And, and conversely, the things that I think people don't even think about much or perceive as risky that I think are risky. Uh, so and trying to be pretty intentional about those two categories. So to give you some examples. All right, so in the physical domain, what are some of the things that I perceive to be not that risky, but actually that other people might think are risky? Okay, bungee jumping. All right, so I jumped off the bridge in Victoria Falls. I've done a gorge in New Zealand. I've done one in Indonesia. I don't know. I've jumped out of a plane and skydiving. So what are the statistics about people dying in those things? I'm sure it's not zero. I mean, people do die every now and then, but it's nothing compared with heart disease and car accidents and all that sort of stuff. So that's a physically risky thing. I think that people might go, oh, you're crazy jumping off a bridge with just a cord tied to your legs Mm -hmm. right of a plane versus what would be something that I'm risk averse about. I tell you what, I'm absolutely petrified of being caught out in the sun without a hat or caught at the beach without sun cream. It just (laughs) fills me with terror, those sorts of things. So the the, the idea of being burnt and then ending up with a melanoma or or, or, some other skin condition or something. I think it's one way. To give you another one, so insurance. All right, insurance is one of my pet topics. I love talking about insurance. So what sort of insurance do I, well, don't I have? And people would tell, tell me I'm crazy. All right, we've got two cars. Neither of them have got comprehensive car insurance, for example. I've got no contents insurance on my house. And people would say, oh, but what if you get burgled? What if you crash your car? Well, we've got third-party property insurance and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, you're right. If I crash my car... And it was my fault, and now I have to buy a new car. Yeah, I, yeah, I wouldn't be happy. <laughs> there'd be some, there'd some financial pain. It wouldn't be catastrophic. I mean, like I'm in a decision where I could continue on without sort of major changes to my lifestyle. Had those things, and the contents. I mean, we don't have that many valuable things in our house. The most valuable thing I reckon is the TV, and it weighs forty kilos. As someone go, I mean, you could say maybe the place burns down. I, I don't know, but anyway. So that there's risks associated with that, and I deliberately do not have insurance for those things. However. Throughout my adult life, I have absolutely gone to the hilt, maximized my life and, and TPD, total permanent, um, total and permanent disability insurance, because that is a catastrophic, life-changing event. If I got hit by a bus and I needed permanent care, we need to retrofit the house, my partner can't work anymore and she's going to look after the kids or whatever it is. Yeah, that's something that we couldn't financially cope with. And so I've maximized that one. So I, and you look at population-level data and people don't have enough life insurance and yet we're all worried about sort of the contents and car stuff, which to me is a much more manageable risk. Career risk is another one. Coming on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Life is over from here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you might empathize with this one. So, I, so I've gone out, for, left a corporate job, 
And some people would say, oh, you're crazy. Like regular salary, uh, paid pretty well, and that it's not a dangerous occupation, but life's pretty, pretty okay. And you've given that up for a job in your own business, which doesn't have any customers or any revenue, and you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, okay. So there's a risk in that. It's mitigated to some extent because it's not exactly a capital intensive business that I, um, it's effectively, it's largely opportunity cost of my time. So it's not like I've mortgaged the house and sort of uh, had to sell off the kids or whatever to, to build mm. the business and, and that sort of thing. And in, I think you could point to things in investments as well. So what are risks that people might tell me I'm crazy about? I'm fully invested in equities. Not only that, I've got a little bit of leverage in there. I think people would say, well, that's crazy. You've got leverage. And if the market goes down, you're actually accentuating the losses. Yeah, that's true. I'm taking that risk. And it's offset to some extent by things like, well, there's lots of individual stock diversification. The companies are all massively cash flow positive. So they're quite resilient and that sort of stuff. So I think there's a few things in there. I think people would say, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy. I don't know. Did any of those sound crazy to you? Well, no, I don't think they sound crazy. I'm just curious how you weighed them up. Like, how did you make the choice? So was it purely a downside, like the, the value at risk, so to speak, of the car? So if you have two cars, I know my downside is limited to this and therefore that's okay. Is that how you made that decision? Uh, I think it's possibly come from looking at the economics of the insurance industry. So I have been involved, I guess, in sort of the underlying, in sort of thinking through that. And I mean, when I get insurance, so I'm paying not only for effectively the risk to be mitigated, but I'm paying a bit of a profit margin. Plus I'm playing for the administration. I'm paying for their advertising. I'm paying... So if I can avoid all that sort of stuff by self-insuring, that's a deal that I want to take as many times as I can, as long as it's a risk that I can financially manage. And so I've tried to say, up to what point can I manage these risks? Do I need to get insurance on my mobile phone in case I drop it and crack the screen? No, I don't. I could buy a new screen. Do I? And so, uh, I mean, some of those things are getting bigger. So yeah, if we crashed a car and yeah, the value, so we, we don't drive brand new Porsche. I mean, it's not a Tesla or whatever. No, this is a relatively cheap secondhand car. So the risk, the downside there is is not huge. As we're not that car proud as a family. So, so yeah, we could get a new car. Oh, sorry, a new secondhand car, a second whatever, a, a, a relatively cheaply. Uh, certainly not a catastrophic risk. Not compared with you're on your back in a bed as a quadriplegic for the rest of your life type risk. Yeah, yeah which I think is a, an order of magnitude or more different. How did you then make the decision to have not only 100% equities, but then also add leverage? It's grown a bit over time. I I think partly because of the tax benefits of having deductible interest in that case, partly because I started so young. When when the um, industry was just starting up with margin loans, I sort of got in, I don't know how old I was, must be in early 20s or something. And so I was just bubbled along. I mean, it gives you a bit of financial flexibility as well that you've got an undrawn or partially undrawn margin loan that you can then go, well, see, there's something coming up and I want to actually invest. I don't have to make sure I've got 10 grand sitting in my cash account that I can then transfer and buy something. Uh, For example, I can just draw it down and then if if money comes in, I can, what am I doing with this $1,000? I could just pay my margin loan. So I think the flexibility helps in that regard. I also think the just the long-term nature of investing, other than when you're maybe in your 60s or even 70s maybe, where you've maybe now looking at a, a timeline of 10 years or, 20, I don't know, even even in your 60s, you might still be looking at 20 or 30 years maybe of, uh, of still investment. But certainly when you're in 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you've got a very long time to go. So really, as long as you can withstand the psychological pain of, of a substantial market decline, 
which is easier said than done, I agree, and has been hard to do from time to time, like that most recent pandemic, I agree, that was not that was not pleasant, <laughs> pleasant to live, live through that, not only you sort of fully invested but also leveraged, I agree, that wasn't, that wasn't fun. But of course, then you get the upside on the way out. So rationally, I think it's something that someone in midlife should be doing. Mm. Uh, even though psychologically it can be sort of painful, uh, painful journey. Well, that's the thing that holds, that's that kind of ceiling, right, of the psychological barrier today is what holds people back. Okay, so I've got two final questions. One is, do you journal? And this could be related to investing or not. And I'm curious, like if you do or you don't, what do you do? Do you, do you practice anything that gives you that kind of, perspective or mindfulness or anything like that? Uh, I don't maintain a thing that I would call a journal. I do place a large value on keeping written records of my thinking, though, in different forms. So to give you an example of a couple of things I do, one is for any book, and I exclusively read nonfiction, so, and they're mostly about all this sort of psychology sort of stuff. So any book or any article occasionally podcasts that I've come across. I have a, what is now a massive spreadsheet where I put a column in for my, in my spreadsheet. So as I read a book, for example, I read it with a pen in my hand. I will underline, mark comments and thoughts in the, in the margins as I go through. And then when I come back, I'll sit in front of my computer and go back through all those bits and type them in my spreadsheet with, my, with the page number in the column with the, what was said in the book my thoughts about it and sort of square brackets, a few key words so I can find it. And I do that, I guess, for a number of different reasons. One is that I can then use that content for subsequent books that I might write or presentations I might give. It's made sort of an easier record, partly because it helps me to digest the content. Mm. I mean, there's an idea in, in sort of a learning around spacing. So spaced learning is better than I forget the name for it, heaped learning or intensive learning or whatever it is. Anyway, the idea that you learn, have a break, learn again. So I've read the book. It might have taken me a week or two to read a book. I've, I've largely forgotten it by the end of two weeks, but then I'm going back and then doing it a second time. And also there's, there's the intensity of I've put effort into this whole process. I'm now actually typing stuff out. It's going through my brain a second time. I'm thinking about my comments. So there's that level of intensity, the spacing of it as well. And then it's the, it's the record. Oh, and actually also, also should say, and partly given my intention for this is to use it for books that I write and presentations. So I have in mind this sort of teaching mindset. So which, again, this is not just me saying this is this um, uh, scholars in the, in the field have demonstrated the benefit of being able to teach, the benefit to yourself of teaching others, mm. of crystallizing your own learning and really understanding how to learn it, having to articulate to somebody else. So I think that that sort of, I wouldn't necessarily call it journaling, but it is a written record keeping of my thinking and, and sort of um, ideas and stuff that have, have come to pass. And that's, I've been doing that for years now and I've found it um, invaluable. You've written quite a few books and that would make a lot of sense that how you can kind of compile your thoughts, ideas, notes. Did you want to maybe give a shout out to some of the books and, and why people would pick them up? Good question. Why would they pick them up? <laughs> All right. So to, to, to run through them. So the first one, which is probably, well, anyway, let, 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 me, let me give you uh, the overview. So the first one was called Applying Behavioral Finance in Australia. So this is my first crack at saying, here's a whole lot of stuff that I think is interesting and useful, and here's how it's relevant for different parts of the industry. So it was for super funds, for financial advisors, for high net worth investors, for asset managers. It's sort of a 
it wasn't as targeted as some of the subsequent stuff. It was sort of like, here's a whole lot of stuff. It's, and look, here's my first crack at a book. Yep. So I, I don't sell a lot of that book anymore. But at the time, I thought it was awesome. Okay. <laughs> so that was the first one. Now, everything after that, what I've realized is, yeah, people don't read books that have application for different people. They like stuff that's relevant for them specifically. So I've tried to target yep. subsequent ones more specifically to audiences or more specifically to topics. It's all behavioral finance sort of stuff. So the second one, uh, second one was called Cyborg, which was this sort of integration piece between some of the decision-making analytics and artificial intelligence and even simple things like the processes around checklists versus human judgment and creativity, and particularly in a, an investment uh, environment. So what sort of things should we be doing ourselves and how can you employ human judgment versus actually, I just run a filter and the filter is better than me trying to judge it because like the filter does, oh yeah, but maybe I run the filter, but actually this earnings needs to be adjusted. So, so I had in there sort of two models, both of them sort of saying we should combine human decision-making with machines. But one model was called the Iron Man model, which if you know Iron Man from the Marvel comics, so Iron Man is a human, but is added to with all this machinery and equipment. Uh, so that's one model to say, how can we take a human and just make the human better by using all these tools and models and stuff? And the other model was the Terminator, which, as you know from the movies, the Terminator is a machine, but has this human skin exoskeleton stuff or whatever on top. And so effectively, it's a machine, but has been made a bit better with all the human stuff. So that's sort of like the idea, I take a filter, but actually the human's inputting a bit in because the data in the filter is not particularly right. So there's sort of two models and we sort of explore how they might work and the pros and cons of different combinations of those in an investment decision, a professional investment decision-making context. And then the third one was behavioral finance, a guide for financial advisors. So this was largely came out of what was then the FASIA, all the FASIA education standards. I was writing content for one of the um, education providers. They needed a course created. I created the course. They said, what textbooks can you provide and I gave them a couple examples and they didn't like them because they were too academic and they were too American and they were too big and they were too this, too expensive. I don't know. They didn't like my examples. And and then they said, oh, well, if you come across anything else. And I thought, oh, I've just written this whole course. Why don't I take each of the topics, the weekly topics, and I've got all the reading lists and I've got all the key points they need to talk to. Let's just take, take each of those topics and turn it into a chapter in a book. So I was sort of half written in the sense that I had all the frameworks and key points. I just needed to just needed to turn into a into a book. Yeah. So that one and it's specific for advisors. And it's a bit investment. There's like some investment concepts, but there's also more about the engagement and asking questions and risk profiling and setting goals and thinking about whether they align with happiness and managing market cycles and all sorts of stuff. So it's a bit it's a bit more on the human side, but still an investment flavor and, and designed for a financial advice uh, reader. And then the last one is behavioral finance, a guide for listed equities teams. It's all about behavioral finance, but I'm trying to target it to and, and be explicit about who is this really for. And so listed equity seems it's a bit more on the technical side. It picks up some of these things we've talked about. Like I talk about that sequence of colors and what it means for overfitting and thinking about the most important things and what some of the responses are to that and having conviction. So some of the things we've talked about today, I've explored in, in that particular book. Mm. That's the last one. And I don't know whether there's another one in there, but I, I keep saying that after each one. So I, I don't know. Never say never. There's going to be a, a link in the show notes to all of them. So the Behavioral Finance Australia website is where you need to go to find out more about Simon. So that will also be in the show notes. But I do have one final question, which is just that I find this turns over so many interesting things. But um, what's one thing about finance investing or business that few people would agree with you on? So... 
few people would agree with me. Actually, I think, so just to take a step back as to where, where I get this from. So one of the things that I was approached on several years back was to say, Simon, all this stuff that you talk to, I don't know, investment groups about, why instead of talking about it, why don't you actually just do it? Why don't you just start a behavioral finance fund where you take all this sort of stuff and create a portfolio? And so I thought, oh, it's, you know, why don't I explore that? So I put together some frameworks, chose some stocks that would likely meet the criteria, um, put some summary materials together, went out to talk to some high net worth type uh, groups and uh, consultants and the like. And some of the feedback I got was, well, like so, so one of the examples I gave was uh, there was a, an iron ore company and it was extremely cheap. It was making money. It had all this cash on its balance sheet. The iron ore price was low. So I wasn't making that much, but it was still profitable and cash flow positive and all the, and it was really cheap. And I was saying, oh, look, here's an example because it's got all these things. And if the iron ore price goes up, it's going to make an absolute mozza. This is like, mm-hmm. and one of the bits of feedback was, yeah, but what's the catalyst? And I scratched my head and I thought, I don't know. I don't know what the catalyst is. And I walked away going, oh, that wasn't a very successful meeting. He's not going to, he's not very interested in, and it's true, he wasn't interested. Uh, <laughs> not, not just for that reason, I think. But anyway, on oh, my reflection was, I don't need a catalyst. That's a, I was trying to sort of say, this is how a decision-making behavioral finance fund would work. And what I should have said is, you don't need a catalyst. And this is exactly the sort of thing that you should be investing in because you should be investing on the basis that other people, other people are looking for catalysts. They can't find the catalyst and therefore they hate this stock. Whereas we know that if we invest on the basis of uncertainty, the uncertainty is sufficient. If people have got a negative view and there's uncertainty, they're probably going to be wrong a whole bunch of times. I don't need to know why they're going to be wrong. I couldn't have predicted that that dam burst in Brazil or whatever and that Vale or whoever it was had to shut their minds down. I couldn't predict that the Chinese were going to have a massive boost to their property industry and need all this steel and the iron ore exports out of Australia would have Anyway, all those things happened and the iron ore price went up. I didn't know that. I didn't, couldn't articulate it, but I don't think I needed to. So the thing I think people would disagree with me on that I believe is you don't need to be able to articulate the catalyst. You just need to be able to effectively bet when the odds are on your side and let uncertainty play out. Well, Simon, thank you so much for taking some time to come into the city and record this in the studio with me. It was an absolute treat for me. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it too. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.